Blog Talk Radio. Anthony, and we'd like to welcome Brother Anthony to Africa on the Move. 
Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father and Brother Anthony, we now are bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and my whole thing is all about institution building. Brother Africa, let me tell you about an article I recently read, which is very, very important. One of the things about the society, one of the things we talk about is kind of deception that exists in the society. And nowhere is deception more apparent than the legal system. Uh, to give you an example, recently four neo-Nazis were acquitted for assaulting some left-wing uh, organizations. And this particular right-wing organization, the Nazi organization, has a long history. In fact, it's known for assaulting those groups on the left. In any event, um, they were acquitted essentially because the prosecutor applied the raw statutes to charge them with. Um, according to the Federal Anti-Riot Act, this act incorporates what you think as opposed to what you do. So what the prosecutor attempted to do is to demonstrate that their actions were, in fact, criminal. I mean, not their actions so much, but their thoughts were criminal. And as a consequence, they were acquitted. Now, if the statutes were applied in conjunction with terrorism charges, then what you think becomes relevant. But the prosecutor chose not to do that. And, of course, we all realize that one of the big, big problems in terms of charging white supremacist uh, terrorists in the society is great resistance to do such. And so as a consequence, these, these white supremacists continue to get off. Um, in this particular case, the judge, um, Judge Carney, he was really uh, confounded by, this, by this, this, these charges leveled against these white supremacists. In fact, he realized that, in fact, what the prosecutors were doing, they were effectively sabotaging this case. Uh, they charged him with the um, Federal Anti-Riot Act, when, in fact, there were other statutes they could have utilized to get a conviction of these individuals who assaulted these left-wing uh, organizations. He listed uh, numerous um, uh, statutes they could have used in terms of securing convictions. One, he talked about the California anti-riding statutes. He talked about the laws against assault, uh, which is common sense. He talked about federal laws against assault. He also talked about conspiracy to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate. Or he even talked about hate crime statutes. All of these would have been relevant in terms of securing a, securing a conviction. But the mere fact that the the state, the prosecutors determined, decided they're not going to pursue those those particular statutes speaks values in terms of ability in terms of convicting others while allowing others to get off. So this is this is a historical problem in American society in terms of the way the prosecutors, the way the state behaves. So it seems to me that given this reality, given this legal reality, but it seems to me without institutions in terms of understanding concretely in terms of how the system operates then essentially what we do, we become victims of strategies that's employed by right-wing forces in society. And if we want to be victorious, then one of the things we have to do is understand intimately the way in which the system operates. And this includes law. So one of the things we can do is, in terms of institutions is to go to these courts, observe these cases, these high-profile cases, observe them, take their notes, and to explain, to better educate the people in terms of how the legal process works. So I think institutions become extremely important in terms of survival in society, so that's definitely what I'm all about. I definitely encourage people uh, to build institutions. And Brother Africa, again, I want to thank you for having me. All right, thank you, Brother Haki. Father Brother Haki, we now bring in 
Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program. It's always an honor and privilege to be able to participate. Peace, everybody. <clears throat> All right, and following Brother Bobby, we will now bring in Brother Moses. Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Yes, Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, to often finish up my faith, and that Mousley tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Okay, good, good. Palace, what we're going to do right now is I first would like to make a little statement to a transition by my, one of my biological brothers, Brother Cleveland Ape Green, born in Richmond, Virginia. He made his transition. He was born on the 23rd of March, 1945. He made a transition on March 27, 2019. Yes, in Richmond, Virginia, we have a going home celebration in honor of him, and we'd like to thank all of those who came and participate. And we'd like to just say that um, he lived a very eventful life. There were many lessons and things that we could learn from his life and his legacy. And one of the things, you know, I would just like to say to the listening audience is that when I think about my brother, I think about a couple of things. The one, the one, Steve, and doing things his way. And he lived it. The things he did, he did his way. And he was adamant about that. And he look at the reflection of the society and try to understand such questions as why do some people have everything and most people have nothing? He never understood that. He never understood how corporations could um, exploit people in a manner in which they do, but yet every time when you see someone getting punished for a crime, it's always the man. So he had his own unique way of dealing with that reality. And one of the ways he decided to do, one of the things he decided to do was to liberate um, things and dealt with the corporation and use the resources to share with the mass of the people. He had many names, and one of the names people knew about had been Santa Claus and Robin Hood, he took from the wealth and gave to the rich. I admire him for his guts and his principles. In terms of how he saw the realities of things, as well as, you know, he was a caring, sharing person. Anyone who knew him would tell you that uh, not only did he care and share, but he was very likable. He was very likable like young man. But uh, we clearly going to miss him, and we just like to give a little shout-out to him. And, Brother Haki, I also think that you had a chance to attend the event. You just give us a little general observation of some of the things you might have observed or pick up from the event as it relates to giving a final um, shout-out and tribute to Brother Cleveland, better known as Ape. Yeah, the, the, the thing is that, um, you know, he was um, very, very spiritual, and it came naturally. So his his ability to be to empathize to care about people was never apparent in terms of everything he did, 
and his consciousness was very, very inspiring. Uh, you know, as a young man growing up and listening to him in terms of the trials and tribulations of society to express the outrage in a way in which uh, uh, it was free of any type of um, any type of anger. He simply, as a matter of fact, expressed the kind of indignities that, that he continued to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but yet refused to allow it to get to him. So I think that in and of itself is very, very extraordinary in terms of, you know, as a human being, be able to contend with these injustices. You know, one of the things that we talk about, the kind of injustice that inflict us now, it was nothing compared to the injustices that he had to grow up with. And so, therefore, his ability to maintain his sense of self, his sense of self-worth, was extraordinary. And it sort of manifests itself in terms of how you interact with, with, with people. And he definitely was very aware in terms of the disparities in society. And uh, he was determined it would allow no system to manipulate him to the extent that he would victimize other working or poor people you know, uh, in terms of making 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 a living in society, so he's very very conscious, he's very very principled, and of course he will be missed very very much. And Brother Bobby, you also was at the program. You may want to say a few minutes about what you observed on the program. <clears throat> what I would say about Brother Cleveland, as was said so many times, he did things his way. He came from a generation where. He never sought to um, be confined to what other people thought was normal, but he lived according to his sense of ideals, and that was reflected in terms of how he treated people, how much he cared about his family, how much he cared about his community. Okay, and on that note, we just said to our brother, rest in peace, John, we are done. We know you live forever by the lessons and legacies you left for others to live by and follow. So, job well done, Brother Cleveland, better known as Aiden. Absolute goes out to you. All right, let's move forward today on the topic, what's going on in your world and the community. Start out with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Uh, Certainly. Um, uh, First, I would like, you know, to extend my condolences to the entire Robinson family you know, on the on the transition of uh Cleveland Green. Um let's uh let's see, it seems uh as if the the US government uh, you know as uh as a backed off on uh on uh you know imposing a tariff on uh, on goods made in Mexico in ter- in return for Mexico, making it more difficult for the indigenous people to move around, you know, in in their own land, and that is to migrate uh, from one uh, from uh, uh, from Central America uh, to uh, to North America, and um, you know, and it's interesting, um, you know, this. Um, this tragedy of repression of the uh, against the indigenous people is continuing and intensifying, and also uh, there is also uh, uh, let's see the U.S. government has made it more difficult for people in the U.S. to uh, uh, to travel and have exchanges uh, with, with the people of Cuba. And, um, you know, and uh, Africans should be especially concerned about this because, um, 
you know, you have, uh, you know, a, a bunch of settler colonists, uh, you know, restricting uh, one group of Africans from, from being able to interact and have relations with another group. And, uh, and uh, you know, and that's something that we have to organize to fight against. Okay, thank you, Brother Africa. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? You, you know, Brother Africa, uh, you know, I, I got to say, you know, the impact of global warming on crops has been unprecedented in the society. Uh, the sheer amount of rain and uh, flooding, you know, has prevented farmers in most cases in the farmland, particularly in the Midwest, from cultivating or even planting seeds. And as a result, this has um, not only reduced years, but increasingly increased food prices. Uh, the impacting soybeans have even more been impacted by the, uh, in terms of the ability, inability of farmers to access farms. Uh, clearly, the impact of food prices and scarcity on food will impact the poor and working class people. And this whole notion that global warming is not real, uh, you know, it has to be confronted. And I think the urgency of action must be replicated, you know, by groups like, you know, Extinction Rebellion, uh, which raises the question in terms of the sustainability uh, of the planet, given the kind of practice that um, capitalism facilitates, you know, not only in America but throughout the world. So I think if you look at the rise in prices in, in, in the stores and the scarcity in terms of, you know, products missing shelves, it clearly we got to understand that not only is this whole trade policy adversely impacting uh, the ability to get food into the, into these into these places, and just as important as the whole pa- impact in terms of the global warming. As much as the administration wants you to believe that global warming doesn't exist, the bottom line is that all you have to do is open your eyes to see that global warming is, in fact, a, a fact of life. So clearly we have to get busy about the business, about, you know, uh, struggling to bring about some semblance of sanity when it comes to a lot of these practices that contribute to global warming. Until we do that, we're making sure we can, we can anticipate that the, the problem in terms of global warming will only exacerbate and won't get better simply by non-action. So we have to take action in terms of bringing about a fundamental change in terms of how we how we do business, you know, not only in the United States but throughout the world. Okay, and Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world? Recently, <clears throat> I saw a picture that generated a number of thoughts in my mind, and it was very similar in nature to um, the picture where we saw the colonizer that killed an elephant killed the lion that was a state symbol of Zimbabwe. This was in southern Africa, excuse me, South Africa, and there was a picture of another female colonizer. This time they killed a rare giraffe. And the media thought that come to mind. There seems to be some type of um, psyops that the colonizers are trying to play with people where they go into the continent and they're doing things to destroy that which are native to the continent that have a strong influence, that have a strong meaning and they're posting them in public places as if to say that this is something to be celebrated. So we have to keep in mind that in terms of what's going on under neocolonialism, that these things are a trend and not a blip where they do this, and that's what they're trying to do psychologically to play tricks on people in terms of picking out these national treasures and then posing in front of them. We need to come back to that. Right, before we do that, we're going to bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, um, it's been an interesting week. Uh, I thought 
Brother Anthony brought up some key key events this week. Are uh, um, I think you know the the tariffs you know, on Mexico right now. I think they're on hold. They made some kind of agreement. I think it's about troops from Mexico going down to the borders or something like that. Uh, but he's threatening us to continue the tariff, the five percent per week tariff, and uh, that was that. Uh, stores like Chipotle say they do a lot of guacamole, uh, so they need avocados, and so they're really crying about how much increase the price will be. Um, I think. Uh, what else has been going on? I, I can't think of anything else right now. Thank you. Okay. Panelists, that response to Jafari made an interesting observation about tourists going in other countries, particularly African nations, and destroying and killing treasure, real precious treasure, um, treasuries that belongs to the people and our culture. Do you think this is just something intentional and also a reflection of how they view Africans again have been politics. Because, you know, in many countries, like in this country, if you kill certain birds or certain animals, that's 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 a penalty for incarceration. Um, how should we respond to these continued uh, behaviors by Western, Western nations and their populations when they go outside of their cultural realms? They have no respect for others, people, norms, and culture. I think the only way to to resolve that problem is the uh, <clears throat> is the liberation of Africa and uh, Africa must unite. Uh, as long as Africa is fragmented into into straw, uh, into small politically unviable states uh, uh, dominated by neocolonialism, this is going to continue to happen. And mainly because these European tourists have money to spend, and uh, for the most part, they don't have any respect for African culture. And uh, there's been a long uh, history of that. And in addition to that, uh, you know, going, uh, you, uh, you know, going on these uh, game hunting excursions. Uh, devastates the land because it upsets uh, a delicate uh, environmental balance when the uh, when these animals become extinct or get close to extinction, and uh, and it wreaks ha- havoc on, 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 on the land. And so uh, you know Africans need to be very seriously concerned about this about this sort of encroachment. And uh, and uh, it's not going to end until uh, until Africa is united and liberated. Anyone else like to respond to it? How should we dress? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well. I, you know, I, I think what you raised, brother Africa, is uh, is, is somewhat somewhat intricate. Uh, in that, one of the things that you know, Africa is up a very difficult situation. I mean, we have a global system in place. Which, which seeks to modulize Africa economically, and so therefore, one of the things that one of the things they need in terms of trade is, you know, uh, currency exchange, and so therefore, the kind of currency that they they they, they get from these 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 Westerners going there, you know, killing up animals, 
uh, is something that they can use in terms of revitalize the economy. Now, the, the, the downside is that I think, you know, when we, when we talk about in terms of the Western propensity in terms of killing things, we can't underscore enough this notion in terms of the West in terms of is, is, is uh, mastery over nature. And so it's been a historical problem in terms of the West in terms of just accepting things as they are and accepting that they got a right to exist. This question in terms of mastery, this question in terms of control by Western nations over in and everything, has been a very historical problem. And so therefore that doesn't stop. And so for them to go to Africa and kill up these very, I mean, very exotic animals for the sole purpose of saying, hey, I killed a rhino, you know, I killed an elephant, I killed a buffalo, I killed a, a leopard, I killed a you know, lion or whatever, or for them to do that is a badge of honor. And they don't necessarily make the connection in terms of the destruction of the animals and the destruction of human life. Uh, they don't see that this propensity to kill, you know, doesn't, doesn't have a, a, it doesn't have a line of demarcation. But once you kill, it transcends animals. You start killing human beings. So you have this this, this phenomenon in terms of in terms of you know just killing, 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 and never ask the question, why do I continue to kill? So I think it's something that the West has to deal with in terms of propensity. It's not to say that it's not to say um, you know that um, that you don't have um, you know Africans on the continent who will kill these exotic animals out of survival. Of course you do. Uh, people are desperate. So if you can get one rhino horn and one elephant tusk and get a year's salary, I mean, it's very difficult to say, say to them, say, yo, listen, we know you're starving, we know your family's hungry, but uh, the animal has a right to exist. So it's a very difficult thing to, to raise with someone who's struggling, whose who survival depends on, you know, that, that, that horn or that tusk. So it's a very intricate problem that we're confronted with. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, uh, unless, like Brother Anthony said, Unless Africa gains control of its economy uh, or control of its commodities and resources, uh, it's not in a strategic position in terms of providing for its populace to make sure that there's no need for people to survive by killing you know, rhinos, elephants, and so forth and so on. Um, so I think it's a very intricate question. But I think in particular, with respect to the West, I think this propensity sort of has no justification for anybody to go over there and kill these exotic animals simply to say, to brag, you know what, I killed some exotic animals. I think for that kind of logic, that kind of thinking, I think it's something that uh, the West has to come to grips with. But uh, but I, but I, but I'm, I'm not holding my breath. That's going to happen. I think this, this this long history in terms of this desire in terms of controlling in and everything is so um, ingrained in the mindset of, of Westerners. I think it's going to take some while in terms of to come to the realization that this whole propensity for destruction of constant killing, you know, has to be questioned. So I think that is a very interesting question, and I thank you for the question. You know, there's something to be said in terms of the psychology of these incidents because you notice one thing is when Western um, nations go on their um, missions to conquest other people, they often try to attack what they consider to be weaker and vulnerable as a means of trying to get the people to surrender. So I think it's safe to say that in this case, by them going after the animals, this is a way to try to put some sense of fear in the people. If they take out what they consider valuable, that they may just give in to whatever demands they will try to levy upon them. Okay. Your response, any Brother Moses? Uh, can you repeat the question? I 
So how you think African countries or non-European countries should respond to tourists outside of their culture coming to their coming into their countries, mm. giving very yeah. valuable um, treasuries, such as some um, yeah. treasure. the incident in China, it was not China, North Korea, where the Americans did some time for trying to see us out of the wall. Anybody thought that was the worst thing possible. Well, my question was why he was trying to steal something that belongs to him. So they have every right to impose their laws, and that was, that was the law. So just in general, what's your, what's your take? How should we deal with people coming to Africa? Yeah, this, this uh, animal killing and hunting, you know, can be linked up to imperialism ultimately. I mean, to take the resources of the country out, out of the country and uh, use it for the interests of the the colonizers or whatever. And uh, this is a long, long time standing problem. And uh, so definitely, the, you know, African countries need laws to prevent it. And uh, I agree with Brother Anthony that the ultimate solution is a unified Africa under scientific socialism as the end all to all this problem. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. New panelist uh, theme today is the art of killing and destruction. What they do now. Directly to the theme, there's a movie that's out there on Netflix called Central Park Five, dealing with the five um, youth in Central Park years ago who was allegedly um, um, was considered guilty. Uh, attacking and raping a European woman, women, a re- European woman, and it's getting a lot of press, a lot of attention. For those who may have seen that, can you talk a little bit about what may be the motivation behind this particular movie and how well you think it reflects the real realities of um, what took place and why they're showing it now? Start with you, Brother Hakeem. Yeah, well, the reality is that what was portrayed on screen is, in fact, what has always existed and exists now. In fact, um, back in the 60s, there was a case called the Marcus Humes murders, in which they caught a, 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 a young African-American male uh, who had um, some intellectual deficits. And they used him to paint murders on him because intellectually he wasn't able to defend himself, and they would essentially do whatever they told tell him to do. So there's been a long history in terms of in terms of this practice among um, law in terms of the in terms of the justice system. Uh, one of the things, you know, Brother Africa, you know, um, you know, when often we have to understand that often the state uh, seeks the desired um, uh, um, results by the kind of charges they level against individuals. Uh, in this case, in the Central Park Five case, it was a situation. Where evidence is actually manufactured. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, this is something they do all the time, and, and this is one of the problems in terms of, you know, lack of awareness in the in African community in terms of how law actually operates. Uh, one of the things also we have to keep in mind because we're talking about adversarial system is not about the truth, and this was very evident in the in the in the in the, in the case of in the case of this particular film when they when they talked about the Central Park Five. Now the thing is that everybody in, in the Prosecutor's office knew those boys weren't guilty. 
There was no there was no forensics that support their guilt. There was no physical evidence to support their guilt. Uh, they knew the boys weren't in, the, in that part of the park when an incident occurred. Uh, all of that. Uh, and despite all of that, they just they focused on those young guys because they wanted to send a, a, a message uh, to the broader society, which says that listen, we're in control. You know that we're going to put an end to crime. And so essentially, what happened was that those young young African American men, young boys at that time, uh, simply became cannon fodder for uh, for the powers that be because they want to send a message that we're going to crack down on crime. And this fact that they didn't do it was not important. And one of the things that the movie didn't bring out, and I think it's important that people understand, that people, let me just say that people should see that, see that movie first and foremost. It calls when, it's called When They See Us by Ava DuVernay. And she did a masterful job in terms of setting the climate, uh, setting the atmosphere, uh, setting, uh, uh, setting the conditions around that time. And matter of fact, at that time, me and others were busy in terms of, you know, going to the courthouse, trying to educate people in terms of the setup, how it was, how it was occurring and set out, set up, up out. And uh, but anyway, she did a masterful job, and so everybody should see that. But in event, brother Africa, um, you know the whole the whole notion that we 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 have to understand, you know there is a there is a a, a version there's there's a relationship, you know between law enforcement and the media. The media did a spectacular job in terms of convincing people uh, in New York that in fact that those young boys were guilty, even though this information was manufactured, it didn't matter because once you put it on television, once you put it in print. And it has a certain amount of legitimacy. So unless people have a consciousness and have an understanding and be able to read between the lines or be able to put together for themselves in terms of an event, then they tend to be manipulated, you know, by the powers that be. And this is a classic example in terms of manipulation. So the consequence, those young boys you know, spend all that time in prison for something everybody knew they didn't do. In fact, one of the things that uh, one of the, uh, the, 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 the one of the prosecutors, the lead prosecutor, Linda Feinstein, one of the things that you, when 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 when, a, when a assistant district attorney approached her in terms of, you know, uh, there was the, the forensic doesn't support that, uh, the charge against these young boys, she said no problem, we just need, we can make a stick. All we need is to get one individual to testify against the others. So it was a calculated uh, move in terms of you know pitting those young kids against one another. So they found the one youth, um, and I can't recall his name. But uh, he was intellectually, he was fragmented. So they used him in terms of going after the others. Even though those young, those young boys didn't know each other, uh, for the most part, uh, they used him to, to essentially indict the others. So he got a statement, and that statement was used essentially to convict those young boys. And what's so ironic about all of this is that when you look at the tapes in terms of the confession of those young boys, it's very, very clear that not only is coerced, that the boys was trying to think as they go along. So it was clear that this was contrived, that the whole confession was contrived. But according to these jurors, they convict them uh, uh, based upon, uh, ironically, they say based upon the physical evidence. But the physical evidence didn't support the conviction. There was no blood. There was no semen. There was nothing that matches, you know, uh, them even being, being at that crime in the first place. But it didn't matter to the system that this power that be. They simply wanted to send a message that we're in control, and these black youth were perfect. Their lives were not important. Their lives were esoteric. And so, therefore, what they did, they proceeded to railroad these young boys. And as I said before, this is not unique in terms of America's jurisprudence. They've been doing this for a long, long time. And the reality is that we have to understand that this is not going to stop. It's not going to stop. Because as long as it maintains an adversarial system where it's all about, you know, us versus them, then they'll continue to fabricate evidence if it serves their interests. And this is what we have to understand. 
So that's an implicit threat in terms of the this judicial system that exists in America in terms of propensity to convict, you know, wrongfully, uh, people who are wrongfully convicted. When you look at a prison, prisons are full of people who didn't do anything. They're there simply because they're poor and they're African. So clearly, you know, there's a problem. So for anybody who thinks that this is some kind of aberration, this is exceptional, this is the norm. And they've been doing this for a long, long time. And until people wake up and realize this and fight back, it's going to continue. Anyone else would like to uh, give their analysis who may have seen this particular movie, their feedback? I want to add something. I haven't seen the um, uh, the film yet, but I uh, just want to add something about um, the Central Park Five case. Uh, there, uh, at the time that that incident occurred, uh, which um, uh, which I think was in the early eighties, uh, there was a real estate magnate. Uh, that uh, that took out a full page ad in the, in the New York Post, I think, uh, calling uh, call, calling for for for, uh, for these five Africans to be executed uh, to bring back the death penalty, and uh, that put him on the national stage. And uh, and and uh, this person's name is Donald Trump. And that's how he that's how he got on the national stage basically by exploiting uh this uh, situation. Not, not only that, back. Brother Anthony. Not only that not only that, Brother Anthony, but the Orange Minutes talk, not only he took an eighty five eighty five thousand dollar ad uh to essentially vilify those kids, but he also talked about the fact that he gonna get some, he, you know, him and others go up to Harlem and just beat everything in sight. So we, our response to that was that, come on, if you want, if you, if you think you play, you think you tough, by all means, bring them, bring it on. You know what I mean? So you know, so clearly, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to facilitate racism by making those statements. In fact, he hasn't changed. His position was that the police are infallible. You know, even though he know New York police is some of the most corrupt cops, you know, in the country, he knows that it doesn't matter. It's all about the facilitation of racism, and so he knew what he was doing when he did what he did because he wanted to facilitate racial, uh, uh, racial division, and he wanted to make sure, you know, in, in facilitating uh, that 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 racism, that he divides the society, uh, the, the New York society, which makes it easy for him in terms of doing business. Because keep in mind, one of the things he was very good at was denying uh, African people housing. Uh, he discriminated all the time. He didn't want African people in his in his, in his properties. So for him to uh, take that stand in terms of facilitating racism was perfect because it justified, you know, the kind of practices that he employed in terms of discrimination against African people in the housing market. So clearly this Asian Orange hasn't changed. Two years later, he's still saying the same thing, the young boys are guilty. So so this is sort of the cognitive dissonance when it comes to racism, which is why you can't debate with racists because of the cognitive dissonance. It won't allow them to see reality. And so it's because they can't see reality, you're wasting your time trying to debate with them. And so this is the thing that Donald Trump epitomizes. I call the Orange Minutes by name. I hate calling them by name. I like to just refer to them as Orange Minutes or 45, as most people refer to them as. But you're absolutely correct. $85,000 ad in terms of, you know, vilifying those young, those young African uh, boys. And when they found out the real killer, they didn't want to believe it. You know, they want to try to put a spin as if he really didn't do it. 
But one of the things I thought were interesting in terms of looking at the reality of some of the contradictions that, that this system has put us under when it comes to this criminal injustice system is how they can put up families, their children against their parents. I mean, one of the one of the male fathers made his son to go ahead and submit to line to say he did it because he knew they could come after him, his job, and change and call hardship for their lives, which is something that goes on every day in terms of choices that we are put under to make. Now, I thought it would be interesting in terms of the, the prosecutor, in terms of looking at her role in the film and looking at her life in reality when you talk about crime. I think the uh, head, head prosecutor, the young lady of Felicity Huffman, She's one of those individuals who are caught up in in the crime scheme around enrollment universities. One of her daughters, she pays some money, kicks some money, some kickbacks to one of the universities so they could accept her daughter. So she's caught up in that scheme now, and I find that not too much different from the attitude that she displayed in the movie. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but anyway, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting movie. People get a chance. They should, should really check that out. But I would like to draw this out um, from the movie to the listening audience and panelists maybe get your response in terms of some sometimes the unintended consequences of producing things or if it would produce for the propaganda purposes or put the feel into the minds and hearts of our people. I mean, can you, because the realization of the movie I also wonder if they put out to make our people become more more frightful in terms of not to want willing to go against the system and fight the system. Because the life in prison, they made it very clear. There's no guarantee if you come in and then you come out there alive. So your response to that scenario that I just um, articulated, panelists? Yeah, well... Yeah, well, you're absolutely correct. It's part of a strategy. One of the things the, the, the system wants to do is to intimidate you know, African people as the most oppressed uh, group you know, in society. And so in intimidating Af- in African people, you serve, it serves as an example to others. You better toe the line because what we do to these African people, we can do to you as well. So clearly you're absolutely correct. Strategically, that's what they do. And so one of the things in terms of the foster system is concerned, one of the things in terms of when you produce that program and allow it to have access to the airwaves, allow people to actually view the program, uh, they have alternative motives. Their motives are not necessary to enlighten, to get people to understand these atrocities exist in the criminal justice system. Their thing is to see what we did to the, uh, the Central Park Five. We can do that to you too. And, uh, and that it does have a chilling effect. It does have a chilling effect, and that's what they want. Because if you say it, and you're not going to, you're, you're not, you're, 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 you're simply going to play ball. You resign yourself to, the, to, 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 the, to a sense of, of powerlessness. And it's precisely what they want you to do. They want you to feel powerless. They want you to feel frightened because they know it's, it's going to have a chilling effect. And as a consequence, you're not, you'll go along with whatever they do. But the problem with that, I think we have to think long terms. One of the things, if you allow them to cow you into being silent or the, or the fear is so great that it paralyzes you, the thing we have to understand is that when as the society deteriorates and they look for convenient scapegoats, you become a, a very um, convenient scapegoat, you know, for all kind of uh, um, right-wing uh, destruction. So when you have um, masses of white supremacists, you know, who 
say, okay, now it's the time to strike, to kill as many African people who possibly can, then you, you, what happens is you effectively created a scenario which is easier for them to come in and just simply kill you because the fear paralyzes you. You can't even move because, because, you don't, because you're, you're frightened. So, there's, so, so there is a double-edged sword in terms of this whole question around fear. Uh, no one's saying that you shouldn't be afraid. You're dealing with sociopaths. I mean, I've said it many, many times. These people run into some sociopaths. A lot of them are psychopaths. So you, you, that's what you're dealing with. So of course you should be afraid because they have no sense in terms of right and wrong. They, they deal in the world of expediency. Whatever it takes to get the job done, whatever it takes to maintain power, whatever it takes to maintain control is what they would do. So we as a people understand that while we're afraid, that we owe it, we have obligation not only to humanity but to our children in terms of understanding you know, the, the intimacies in terms of how society functions and the impact it has on our people as an oppressed nationality. And if we don't understand that fundamental reality, then what we're doing is simply tantamount to setting ourselves up for a big fall. And then one thing is we understand. We're talking about the flows of history. So when we talk about the flows of history, we understand. When we look at what happened in Rome and we look at Nazi Germany or Britain or the U.K. or whatever, when we look at these or, or Italy or fascist Italy or any of these places, we look at terms of these systems deteriorated, there are always repercussions when these systems deteriorate. Innocent people have to pay the price for their lives, and that's just the core reality. It's not hyperbole. It's not designed to scare anybody. It's to tell you this is the hardcore historical reality. This is history that we're in. And don't think that somehow American, this whole crap about American exceptionalism, somehow makes American exceptional. Human beings are human beings. Human beings behave the way they have always behaved historically. And to think that somehow that America's going to be different, that somehow they're going to be more humane, they're going to be more scientific, they're much more uh, empathetic in terms of the decline of the system, is foolish. They're going to do exactly what everybody else did historically. That is, Kill those people that you receive as workers, those people you receive as as as, as the draining the resources, those people you see who who lives you see as superfluous. So um, until we understand the reality, you know, um, I think that uh, we allow fear to over, overwhelm us, and we can't allow that to happen. No one said you shouldn't be afraid. What we're saying is that you have no other recourse but to stand up. Because the bottom line is, one way or the other, you will have to take a stand. That's just a historical reality. Yes, um, I think uh, I think fear. Uh, I think the per- one of the things that fear does, uh, you know, that, that these actions do, and that this is supposed to does it does inculcate fear in people, and that is by design, and that is why you know why a lot of Africans are afraid to stand up a lot of times, but. Uh, but we can't allow ourselves to be paralyzed by fear. We must get organized because you're more effective as a group than you are as an individual. And uh, and uh, you know, and the thing about it, as uh, Haki Corellis point out, they've been doing this for many years. I can think of the, the Scottsboro case as another example, in which uh, several African men were railroaded into prison, in some cases executed, because they allegedly r- raped some uh, European women on a train. So, uh, so this has been going on for for a very long time, and uh, and uh, and the thing and the solution to it is that we have to be permanently organized, so that we can look out for our own self-interest, and uh, and be in a better position. Uh, to fight for ourselves. 
I, must I think that Brother Haki is correct in that there is no reasoning with these white supremacists, um, these races. Uh, they they have the uh, logical system of their own, and it's based upon emotionalism ultimately, and, and uh, white supremacy. And basically, you know, Donald Trump and uh, the, the lady who's the prosec- who was the prosecuting attorney in the case of the five. Uh, they they don't apologize. They don't they don't backtrack. They don't correct. They don't do anything. They just keep plodding along, you know, basically uh, as if they were correct all along, and and somehow it's some kind of fluke that's happened, and, and this is getting off of a technicality or something. Uh, 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 their mentality is it's unreasonable, and there is no reasoning with them. That's why it's an antagonistic contradiction between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. There is no middle ground. It's, it's totally yes and no. And it's an antagonistic contradiction that's irreconcilable. Thank you. You know, Brother Africa, let me just read this point real quick and then I'll conclude. But I think it's important we understand now. When I, earlier, when I talked about the, 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 the desired impact the system wants to have when it comes to prosecuting individuals. Recently, Mohammed Noor, I uh, was an African police officer in Minnesota, uh, was convicted of shooting uh, this white woman in the dark. Uh, the white woman startled him, and uh, he shot you know, out of fear. Well, the whole notion in terms of fear was no longer applicable as far as the state was concerned. The mere fact that you killed a white woman means that we don't care how scared you was, you crossed that line. As a consequence, Mohammed Noor received 12 years in prison, which is unprecedented. Unprecedented, you hear me? There's cases in Chicago and elsewhere, they, in, in, in South Carolina and elsewhere, where they actually just put the gun out and kill people point blank with their hands up in the air and just shoot them and kill them, and they get two years. He got 12 years because the difference is that when they kill people uh, in Chicago, South Carolina, what have you, those people happen to be African, so killing them was okay. But Muhammad Noor killed a white woman. Now, you killed a white woman, so you crossed that line. So the prosecutor, in terms of their choice, in terms of how they can go about prosecuting the case, uh, uh, differs in terms of how they go about prosecuting the case when it comes to white cops killing African people. So clearly uh, the state has a vested interest in terms of the outcome of these cases. And this is what people have to fundamentally understand. Uh, We've got to get out of this notion in terms of, you know, uh, I don't want to know. And those people say, I don't want to know, I don't care. Well, you know, you can say that, you can take that position, but, you know, it, it may come back to haunt you. You may have a loved one who's caught in the criminal justice system, and then you have to find it the hard way in terms of, you know, how um, unjust, you know, the system really is. Before we get to that point, it's better that you move the work forward to change the, uh, the fundamentals of the system, which is, which, is, which is not only predatory, but racist at its core. And so this is the fundamental problem that we have in terms of, in, in, in terms of prosecution. Uh, you know, um, another thing, you know, the mere fact that they convicted Muhammad Noor, um, and gave him 12 year sentence. It means that not only was the prosecution on board, also the, the police union who was supposed to represent the police, the judges, uh, you know, so all those people, you know, have to be on board in terms of agreeing that you're going to indict, you're not only indict, but you're going, you're going to find him guilty of a crime and then send him to 12 years in prison. So clearly, this is an example. Uh, this is an example to law enforcement. It's okay to kill African people, but you will not. We repeat, when you kill white people, particularly white females, 
asking there's a question that there's 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 a, there's a, the, the the problem that there's 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 questions that have to be answered, and there are repercussions in terms of actually doing that. So clearly, you know, the, the, so we, the kind of outcomes is predicated to a large extent in terms of the whims of the prosecution office. And so this is what we got to understand why African people are treat, treated so poorly in the criminal justice system. And for those who think that the system is just or that somehow the system is, is not working properly, I maintain, as many do, that the system is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. It's working properly. And so let's stop deluding ourselves into believing that the system somehow is, is, is broken when, in fact, it's working the way it's designed to work. You know, I'd just like to give a shout-out to the brothers who refuse to compromise and refuse to give in to something they didn't do, and much prop to the, to, to the mothers who, who are very strong in their movie in terms of um, fighting on behalf of their sons and refuse to go along with, with, with these indictments. You know, that's just really real interesting. And one point before we move forward and begin to discuss our theme for the day, I would just like to get y'all a general response to the makeup of prison guards, their mentality in terms of how they view the young brothers in general and the prisoners in, in particular. What do you all make up their mindset that will cause them to behave in the capacity they behave uh, when it came to these young brothers' first time being incarcerated, um, panelists? You know, I think it's unfortunately there's a culture where when they're getting their so-called training, there's a certain mentality that's instilled in them is to make sure that those are incarcerated to feel intimidated and feel belittled. So they do what they can to ridicule, to mock, and make mock, excuse me, and make sure that those who are incarcerated do not have any sense of their humanity. So that's what the name of the game is. They're there to make sure these people don't have any kind of um, feeling of humanity to person and to keep their foot on their necks. Good also, also, I think also you have to keep in mind that the kind of people they hire are people who um, position is um, their indifference you know, to power. They don't see a problem in terms of systemic abuses. Uh, they don't see a problem with that. And so, therefore, they're more likely to support the system. So what they want is people in positions like correctional officers, people who support the kind of brutality, you know, that's laid out by the system. Uh, those people who don't think like that, those people who just simply want to do a good job in terms of, you know, protecting those in, those inmates, uh, treating them with respect and dignity, they don't want those kind of those kind of individuals in those facilities. As a consequence, anytime you demonstrate your willingness to be humane in terms of your treatment of your inmates, then you become mocked. Uh, for termination as far as the system is concerned when you talk about those facilities because they don't want those kind of people in those positions. And the same with police. They're looking for a particular kind of personality mindset in terms of being a police officer. And one of the things, you know, um, uh, some, about you know, um, about a year back when I had the opportunity when a brother invited me uh, to be part of this uh, seminar uh, with cops around the state, um, and we had a very good time. And, uh, of course, I, I angered a lot of them because they didn't know what the hell I was talking about you know, they just disagreed, but they, they couldn't refute what I was saying. They just was angry because I said it. But in any event, it was very, very clear in terms of talking to these, these cops. I mean, they had no clue in terms of historical understanding of the world. They know nothing about the origin of, of police officers in terms of what that means. Uh, they knew nothing about it in terms of the uh, uh, systemic injustice inflicted upon, you know, people, poor people and people of color in society. They knew nothing about any of that stuff. And the mere fact that the people who came in to instruct them in terms of trying to enlighten them in terms of, you know, uh, all these factors going to terms of policing, 
for the most part, it fell on deaf ears. It still didn't grasp, you know, um, you know, the 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 the, the, the impact and the significance in terms of their behaviors, uh, because they have been programmed to believe that everything is fine. And anytime you got people who believe everything is fine, then whatever the system does, they they call upon support it. And so, as long as they support it, then the system is fine. And so, this is this is this is a fundamental problem that we have. So, unless the struggle is in society to create people who who people who are knowledgeable, people of compassion, people who who remain, uh, what you end up is getting people who are not compassionate, people who are not enlightened, people who are indifferent to the system, willing to do whatever the system tells them to do, and don't have a problem with it. So, when you're in a situation with the Central Park Five, we have these African guards or African correctional officers treating these guys as less than human, I mean, it makes you sick to your stomach. And the mere fact that she created a scenario where there's particularly this, this, this little 90-pound, uh, one of the uh, um, uh, guy, a little guy about five, seven, 90 pounds, 100 pounds, to put him in a, put him in a situation where he's sodomized by these two big, burly, you know, inmates, uh, uh, where he's assaulted, you know, by some Nazis in prison. Uh, to do that, it speaks values in terms of the kind of insensitivity that's so permanent, so so apparent among you know those individuals who uh, occupy those kind of positions in society. So clearly, we got a problem in terms of you know, um, uh, in, in terms of the kind of people who are who who get these kind of jobs. Unless there's some kind of groundswell in which we 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 de- we demand that you hire people who are compassionate, people who are humane, people willing to do job in terms of the betterment or to create the create better, the betterment of of, this, of, the, of a society, then you continue to have these people who who are, who are to the contrary opposed to this, this notion in terms of society can be better. So I think that's a fundamental problem. Well, let's know what it is. If you get a chance, and I'm not trying to promote this to for Netflix or anybody else making their money, but there are a lot of lessons we can learn from the, that darker drama, the way they see us. Check it out. But meantime, to all the brothers and sisters who are currently incarcerated, we want you to stay strong. We dedicate this song to you all. We want you all to keep your head up. You're not by yourself.
and they wonder why we crazy. I blame my mother for turning my brother into a black baby. We ain't meant to survive because it's a setup. One of the um, 
uh, the thing I got from this article was that uh, that uh, UNICEF and the World Health Organization, who were going into Kenya uh, to administer this anti-tetanus vaccine, allegedly to prevent tetanus. But uh, it turns out that uh, that some of the doctors uh, affiliated with the uh, with this uh, uh, Catholic charities that run several hospitals in Kenya, as well as various uh, medical centers, that uh, that they uh, that uh, that the vaccinations were targeting women in their childbearing years. And that uh, and that it re- required uh, the administration of, of five uh, uh, shots or jabs, as they call them in Kenya, over uh, o- over a two and a half year period. And that uh, and that uh, alerted them. And upon examination, they discovered that these. Uh, that this anti tetanus vaccine had uh, ha- had an uh, 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 a, a chemical that causes sterility in women, and uh, and uh, this is a very in, in, insidious attempt at population control. And uh, because uh, you know, because the, uh, you know is uh, you know is done without the knowledge of the patient, of course. And uh, you know, and uh, you know, and uh, and the thing about it though, it's uh, it's very devious, and 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 it undermines, uh, you know, uh, you know, women's right, you know, to choose uh, when and how many children that 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 they elect to have. And uh, so it's a very uh, a very sneaky way. Of trying to uh, uh, you know to eliminate uh, the African population in Kenya. Brother Haki, who is the driving force for being so um, so slick about misdirecting their real intentions in terms of not to come to help the people, but actually to kill them all? What's the driving yeah, well, force? Well, uh, the driving force of it is driving force is, is um, uh, capitalism. Uh, we have to understand that the, the the interest of Africa doesn't lie in terms of what's the interest of its people. The interest is in the land, it's in the resources that Africa can provide. And so, this whole struggle uh, in terms of depopulating Africa has always been a a, a, a prime prime motive in terms of Western interaction with Africa. And it's good that Dr. Ngeri uh, suspected someone was a foul, the fact that when we talk about a technic shot, he's talking about five shots for a technic. So he realized something was fundamentally wrong, which caused him to, to look into that. And when he checked, checked test those viruses, those, 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 those medications out, he found out this, 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 this um, antigen called ACG was, was, was all about anti-fertility. And so the whole idea in terms of actually limiting the, uh, ultimately driving out the, uh, the, the population of Africa, and so if you want to if you depopulate Africa, then all oh you have all this land, all these resources available for Western picking, and so therefore it's very very important for them. But one thing for the Africa, I have to point out, this, in terms of this desire, in terms of um, you know to depopulate Africa has been a, it has a long and sordid history. 
uh, one of the things, you know, back in 67, of course, you know about Ebola. Now, one of the things people don't know about Ebola is that initially Ebola uh, was, was discovered in Frankfurt, Marbury, Germany. Uh, most people don't know that. We only found out about Ebola when it affected uh, uh, Africa, in particular with the Ebola River in the Congo. And that's when this whole question in terms of Ebola first became a focus. So clearly this, this question in terms of Ebola was something that was, was, was created, not nat- a natural occurrence, but something that was created in a laboratory. Uh, in fact, to give some, some, some credence to that position, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute stated that the virus was airborne. Unfortunately, you know, they're talking, the fact that they're talking about it airborne, they're talking about person to person, but what they couldn't, what they couldn't establish was why some things that increased uh, uh, happened in Uganda, Angola, Gabon, and Cote d'Ivoire all at the same time. So clearly, there was some 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 strategy behind terms of the dissemination of this particular virus. Also, keep in mind that you know in the 80s, uh, the World Health Organization also uh, was responsible for using yellow yellow fever vaccine uh, to spread um, uh, to spread this so-called um, HIV virus that we know today. So it has a lot of sort of history, and and if people want to know more about this, they can always read um, Germs by Judith Miller. It's a very good book chronicling, uh, you know, uh, uh, biological warfare uh, in terms of the West and ambitions in terms of controlling the world by utilizing bio- biological weaponry, uh, viruses in particular, in terms of you know undermining uh, the world's populations. Now, Walter Bassoon uh, of South African cardiologist. Uh, this guy during the, the South African Truth Conciliation hearings, he talked about the fact that he was responsible for creating the Ebola, Rosemi, and Marlboro virus in addition to the recombinant HIV or the AIDS virus. He said he was responsible for that. He also talked about the fact that he was funded by the CIA. So this whole point in terms of depopulation, depopulation, depopulating Africa has always been a, a, a driving motive in terms of U.S. interactions with Africa. And it's important that African leaders understand that any time the West does something for you, then you've got to look at it as scans. You've got to understand that the motives are not pure. And so, therefore, you know, you've got to be on your guard in terms of any type of medical, particular medical intervention that comes to Africa. Now, let me just mention one other thing just to give you some, some idea in terms of how, how pervasive this, this practice is in terms of, you know, just killing people off. In Afghanistan recently, uh, the World Health Organization was, was, was responsible for bringing polio to the people in Afghanistan. So, so the, 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 the motive is different in terms of Afghanistan because what they want to do is they want to essentially defeat the Taliban, and they feel if they can weaken the population, uh, uh, essentially they can weaken the Taliban by weakening the general population. So the motivation is, is, is a bit slightly different. In Africa, it's simply about depopulation. It's all about depopulating society. So we have to understand the nature in terms of you know these Western uh, strategies in terms of depopulating Africa. And we have to understand that when we when you see medical uh, interventions from Western states, then you got to be very very critical in terms of what's going on, and you must definitely check it and recheck it and make sure that what you're receiving is what you think you should be receiving. Professor Bobby, give us your take on what came to your mind when you read this article. What one thing I will say is not beneath. Um, Western imperialist nations to come up with ways to ensure that those people whom they have a hard time defeating would not be able to produce the kind of great minds that would inevitably lead to their downfall. When you think of things like the smallpox blanket, when you think of the syphilis experiment, 
all of these fall in line to terms of using chemical agents to stifle and um, stammy people from being able to properly produce life that would have the utmost potential. Because don't get it twisted. The Western um, leaders who came up with this um, diabolical instance understand that there's great potential in terms of what can happen if you have a strong youthful population, and they don't want that to happen. So they know the best way to prevent, prevent that is to make sure there cannot be future life from coming into existence. Mm. Brother Moses, your take? Well, these this, these so-called uh, um, vaccinations for health reasons have been used as covers, and uh, and uh, I think Brother Hakish spelled it out pretty well. That you know the situation is is uh, is very suspect when you offer health aid. Uh, uh, the Western powers are, are not humanitarian, and uh, they usually have some ultra-motive ultra, ultra behind them, and, and people should be weary of that. Uh, experiences taught us to be weary of that. And, uh, these are just more examples of that situation, you know, Of this uh, 
people's resistance to vaccinate their children. Uh, the, when you think about this persistence by the government that, you no, know, you've got to take them, then you've got to ask yourself, what the hell is going on here? Why does it have to be a persistence that you take this vaccine? Uh, you know, if, in fact, if the child comes down with some kind of ailment, uh, you know, uh, then, okay, then you take the vaccine. But as long as they remain healthy, then what is the problem? I'm reminded of the fact that the, 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 the young lady, uh, the doctor, I can't recall her name, but she was in the U.S. and she left there. She's in the Panama currently. She's not coming back to the U.S. She says that she wanted people to listen. All of those vaccines you take are designed to weaken your immune system. She said, do not take them. She said that before she left here. She won't come back to the U.S. because she, she knows she, what her position is, that if she comes back to the U.S., she knows she's dead. Uh, so she's not going to come back. But she warned people before she left the U.S. She said, please, do not take those vaccines. And the mere fact that the government is adamant that you take the vaccines speaks volumes in terms of real motivation. So the mere fact that they're adamant about that, I wouldn't give my grandchildren, you know, those vaccines. I would tell anybody, no, no, don't take those vaccines, even though they're going to try to press you to take them. Do what you got to do in terms of making sure your children don't take them. Now, if your children come down with an ailment, and then, okay, the, then the vaccine exists, then that's fine. But allow them to remain healthy. What is the need in terms of taking those vaccines? So, ver- so the question that you raised, Brother Africa, are very, very good. It, it underscores the, the, the role of propaganda that's confusing people because once they say that, you know, uh, the, 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 the vaccines or your body is becoming uh, immune to these vaccines and they can have no impact whatsoever, when they say that, then you've got to understand that, you know, that's more to the picture than simply, you know, their concern in terms of your health. So I think you have a very good point that you raised. Yes. Um, I, uh, also, in addition to propaganda, you got uh, the factor in uh, these so-called disasters, which uh, which uh, people exploit in order to give these vaccines uh, because they're supposed to be preventative, allegedly. But uh, but again, you, uh, but but again, uh, uh, you know the, the the best security is really education. I want to share a quote uh, uh, from, uh, from from uh, this article. UNICEF: A history of taking advantage of disasters to mass uh, vaccinate. It should be noted that UNICEF and who distribute these vaccines for free and that these are and that these and that there are financial incentives for the Kenyan government to participate in these programs when funds from the UN are not enough to purchase yearly allotments of vaccines an organization started and funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Gavi provides extra funding for uh, uh, for money uh, uh, for many of these vaccination programs in poor countries, and uh, and uh, so so that's uh, that's something that's ra- raise a flag right there. That uh, that 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 they have this private foundation run by eugenicists that uh, that that is funding these vaccination programs. So, uh, so, so, uh, so, uh, you know, to make things even more complicated, 
the issue of health care is becoming very uh, politicized. Brother Bobby, I'm going to read this article and give another example why we must be leery of the hype when you're talking about viruses being, being available in populations, but you don't really have no way of really um, proving them being recognized. It also states when we look at serial panelists, it's a very similar mass vaccination with the lab or polio vaccine occurred among Syrian refugees in 2013 when 1.7 million doses of polio vaccine were purchased by UNICEF in spite of the fact that no case of polio had been seen since 1999. After the mass uh, vaccination program started, cases of polio began to reappear in Syria. Then it talk about, you know, you talk about 1.7 billion polio vaccine was purchased by UNICEF. So, when you read that, brother, brother Jabari, again, what lessons can we learn from this? What you can get from that is you gotta be careful in terms of the dangerous and um, futile um, nature of these vaccinations because nine times out of ten, when you're looking at them. You got to ask yourself, why is it they say they're going to infect you with one virus to cure another virus? Oftentimes, that's what these vaccinations are. It's not that it's just a straight line cure. It's basically you getting some other ailment to fight another foreign ailment. So, anytime you have these pathogens traveling in your bodies, you got to be careful because there could be a myriad of side effects. And that's why, if you notice on uh, medical commercials, you know, within the last five seconds, as fast as they can, they rumble all these side effects off. They don't make it obvious up front. But the last five seconds let you know that it's very experimental, so you gotta understand that that's what you're dealing with. You know, brother Moses, one of the things they do to try to force us to take these things is they make is is to make you make a choice between taking it and getting sick or or or, or not taking it, and you won't be able to send your kids to to um, school or to the universities. How should we deal with that dilemma? What be your Advice, um, to listen to well, I think the recent example is this is uh, the measles. Uh, there's a recurrence of measles which had been wiped out supposedly. Uh, uh, people are being blamed for not getting vaccinations, especially I think some of the Jewish communities. And uh, so, you know, this this is this could be all true, but it's also the perfect cover for for introducing something that's undesirable into the, the mix. Uh, and so there's, we, we're, we're dependent upon scientists or somebody blowing a whistle if this has happened. Uh, otherwise, you know, we, we, you're, you're, you're supposed to drink the Kool-Aid. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's a very precarious situation to be in. Thank you. Brother Africa, let me let me brother Africa, let me go back in terms of Bill and Melinda Gates. It's interesting that they're willing to spend you know billions in terms of providing uh, these vaccines for for people in Africa, but not willing to to do to do things to betterize the infrastructure. Uh, what about schools? What are those kind of things? How about investing in those kind of things? 
those things uh, are, are extremely important. But yet they won't do that. But they will do it. They will invest in vaccines. The question is, why is that? And the mere fact that he is a eugenist, that his position that there are too many people on the planet, and the mere fact that he's going to invest in Africa raises red flags. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, and, and, and this is important, that when we talk about too many people being on the planet, one of the things is that as long as you have the current economic system in place, a global capitalism, then you're right that there are too many people on the planet, uh, simply because the systems that, that, that determine allocation of food, um, how land is used, um, 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 access to education, until those things are addressed, then of course there are too many people on the planet. It seems to me once you address those those fundamental needs of human beings, the question in terms of too many people on the planet would address itself. Uh, but as long as you have a situation where people are desperate, where people are ill-educated, uh, where people depend on large families in terms of sustenance, in terms of survival, particularly when it comes to farming, then, you, then it seems to me that people who say on the one hand that they're serious about you know, population control are not really serious about population control. So the mere fact that they opt to actually you know, give people these vaccines speaks values in terms of an intrinsic motive because it's not about the betterment of humanity by doing that. It's because the betterment of humanity doesn't lie in terms of the dissemination of vaccines. It lies in those kind of things that, make, that, that uplift humanity which means that this question in terms of too many people on the planet can be adequately addressed. Uh, so I, I think that um, his, 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 uh, his motives are less than pure. And so I think that, again, I think that African leaders, you know, scientists and doctors, when that, when that Western vaccine is coming to, you, to your state, then you better check it and recheck it uh, because, you know, seriously, um, there's a mass scramble for Africa, and the people who are scrambling for it, don't give a damn about the African people. Don't give a damn about their existence. All they want is the, the land and the resources. So clearly, you know, it's all suspect. But, panelists, like always, what responsibilities should we lay on the so-called African elite, the African so-called rulers, the Africans who have capital, who have access to this information, but they choose to capitulate? along with the game uh, for their own self-interest. How do we deal with them? We have to deal with them uh, the way we deal with any any other sector of the anti-people class uh, through a relentless class struggle. And that needs to intensifying and is intensifying. But uh, but in order in, in order for the people to win, they have to be organized. And uh, and we suffer from uh, from lack of organization and education. And uh, and the reason why you know the world is overpopulated. Actually, the world. Uh, has a, has enough to take care of its people. It's just that it's just that the imper, uh, the, imper, uh, the imperialist system that dominates the world is irrational. When you have a, a, a case where a, a, a small percentage of the people consume the bulk of the world's resources, then of course there's not going to be enough, you know, to take care of uh, uh, you know of all the people in the world. 
And that's why the system has to be changed. But it can only be changed if we are organized enough to bring it about. And uh, that and that's what was happening. And 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 the reason why uh, uh, it, historically Africans were needed for cheap labor. And uh, you know the uh, the, ru- the 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 ruling class of the world has found other sources for cheap labor, at least for the moment, until the people get fed up with the game and and and, and overturn it. Uh, but uh, but but because we're not needed for cheap labor anymore, uh, you know uh, uh, you know uh, that there there are various schemes to uh, to eliminate us. And we've got to understand that and get organized to protect ourselves. And that means uh, being organized and also uh, being being educated in the sciences and all of other fields of human endeavor so that we can uh, can, uh, be prepared for whatever arises in the future. Tough question, Brother Africa. Very tough question. Um, how are you going to li- – essentially asking how are you going to liquidate class? And I, I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> uh, clearly, um, the, the, the mass of the African people are suffering throughout the diaspora. Uh, and, yes, our leaders tend to sell us out, whether we're talking about the United States, Europe, Africa, Central South America, the Caribbean. They tend to sell us out. And to a large extent, they have very much embraced this notion that money defines who you are as a human being. So until we can spell this notion in the minds of our people that money defines who you are as a human being, we continue to play that game in terms of reaping the benefits, or at least what we perceive as benefits, uh, by simply playing, by playing that game. Uh, it's a very tough thing to do. Um, you know, um, one of the things uh, we, we, can't, we can't dismiss is the kind of ruthlessness that exists, you know, in the African world in terms of making sure that those, positions, those people in positions of power in order to maintain that power, willing to ruthlessly suppress or oppress the people in terms of uh, for marginal gains, uh, is a big, big problem. Uh, one of the things recently, you know, uh, on the continent of Africa, uh, they moved toward a situation where they're trying to create a common market in Africa, in which you know trade among African states becomes priority, which is good. But uh, Nigeria and Benin are in opposition to the idea, and the question is. Why were you? Why were Benin and Nigeria and 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 and, and Eritrea? Why would these three African states be in opposition to, you know, trade on the continent, trade among each other? It's potentially the catalyst for much bigger and greater things for the continent. So why are they resisting to do that? I suspect that it has a lot to do in terms of some some type of relationship with the West, in terms of throwing a wrench in the works. In other words. Uh, this notion that you know that uh, Africans trade among themselves uh, is a is a, is a intimate threat to the West, and by utilizing you know uh, promises of money, these African states are willing to say no 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 we're not interested. So I think it's a very big, it's a big big problem in terms of this class thing, in terms of you know in terms of our people. And one of the things about the African, when we talk about this corrupt mindset about our people, you know we we've been we've been um, we've been infested with this colonial mindset, you know, uh, for over 400 years, where on the continent we're talking about in excess of 1,500 years. So it's a deeper, it's a deep, deeper internalization of this notion in terms of money defining who you are. 
And because that notion that money defines you are is so deeply entrenched in the minds of so many people, a lot of these leaders don't have a fundamental problem in terms of being corrupt as long as they get some crumbs. You give them some corrupt Western nation, give them some crumbs, they want to do in everything that Western nation tells them to do. So it's, 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 so it's incumbent upon the, 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 the masses of people in terms of understanding what the, what the contradictions are in terms of society and, 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 and organizing and moving against those corrupt leaders, you know, in African states. But not just Africa, and I won't let's be clear on this point. Also in America, where we got these with these corrupt Africans, you know, uh, who are doing things under the guise of making money, you know, to the detriment of their people, we also have to move against those corrupt African leaders in America. So it's a global situation, it's a global problem, but the question in terms of, you know, liquidating class is not an easy one, Brother Africa, but I agree that we have to seriously think about it and try to formulate some kind of idea in terms of how we're going to go about, this, you know, destroying this, 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 uh, this, this, this materialist mindset, or this colonial mindset that manifests in so many of our people. Okay, panelists, we're going to pause for this call. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're dealing with the theme tonight, the art of killing and destruction. This is what they do. We'll be right back.
are discussing the art of killing and destruction. This is what they do. These are various art forms of how the enemy uh, use it to destroy and kill other people. Now, panelists, one of the things I'd like for you to respond to this question, and then we're going to do a little special um, discussion after you hear this interview coming up um, shortly, um, dealing with lessons from the 67, 80, and 90 from Brother Kwame Ture. But in terms of having the discussion and looking at how vaccines are being used as a tool, as a tool of warfare, do y'all agree that this is one of the many forms of tools they use as part of the warfare against African people and oppressed humanity? Yes, it it, it, it is, and. Uh, and it's a ver- and it's a part it's a it's a form of biological warfare, and uh, and it's at least and it's a and it's a method that's at least a couple of hundred years old. Uh, recall from the study of uh, of uh, you know uh, of the history of the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, European colonists. Uh, deliberately infected blankets for smallpox, and gave them to, uh, to 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 the indigenous people, and they got and they, and they got and they got uh, uh, you, you know sick and eventually uh, eventually that died from the diseases resulting from that. So uh, uh, biological warfare is a uh, it, it, you know is a very old weapon. Uh, you, you, you know, to per, per, perpetrated against the population you're trying to get rid of. Okay. Anyone else like to take a stab at this before we go to lessons from the 6780, Brother Kwame Ture, and we can come back and we want to tie this all into discussion. Because I was told that the enemy has a philosophy of once they have done something that being successful, they will never give it up. So another response to whether or not if these this is another form of warfare against African people and oppressed people in, in particular. Yes, it, it, it absolutely it absolutely is. And uh, weaponizing viruses for the sole purpose in terms of you know for for strategic or tactical needs, of course they've been doing it for a long, long time. And Brother Amp is absolutely correct in terms of dissemination of blankets with you know quote smallpox for the sole purpose of killing all the indigenous people. In America, and it's, it's long history in terms of doing that. So we got to keep in mind uh, one of the things that when we talk about um, uh, in the West, we talk about you know uh, the, uh, you know creating all these these, these bacteria and uh, these very destructive kinds of bacteria and viruses. Uh, the question becomes why they continue to 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 to, to formulate and to create these kind of viruses and bacteria. It doesn't bode well for humanity to create these viruses and bacteria. But they do so for, for, for because they have uh, aspirations to use them for war, and so therefore, when we talk about dissemination of, of, of vaccines in terms of um, um, purposes of um, spreading, you know, diseases, of course, uh, that's what they've been doing for a long, long time. That hasn't stopped. So you're absolutely correct. So when we talk about the fact that, um, you know, if something works, why stop? Of course, that that is the whole point. And also, we have to understand. Now, one of the things when we talk about the power, we got to be very, very clear about the Africa. Listen, the people who got the power, you know, these Western leaders who got the power, they're not going to they're, they're give it up. 
And so in, in their mind, they're going to do whatever they have to do in terms of maintain their power. I remember one time in South Africa, I had the opportunity of talking to this, uh, to this guy out of the U.K., and, um, and I'm saying to this guy, I'm saying, listen, you know, there seems to me there has to be a point in which you won't go beyond in terms of the preservation of power because ultimately, you know, that, 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 you know it, it backfires uh, because you can go so far in terms of dissemination of, of, of you know, viruses. Uh, at some point, you, you, you run a risk that you will be impacted by those same viruses that you, that you created. Uh, and, of course, he didn't understand that. He turned red as hell. He didn't understand that because in his mind, his position was that you do what you have to do in terms of maintaining power at all costs. And even if that means that the power, the things that you do are self-destructive that eventually impact on you as purveyor of these viruses, then so be it. And so clearly you got this mindset in which they're willing to do in and everything in terms of preservation of power. And so when you talk about viruses being part of that arsenal that they use in terms of their war against African or people around the world, you're absolutely correct. I mean, that's precisely what this is all about. And when you talk about war taking many, many forms, this is something that we have to understand. Not just the propaganda that we have to fight against, we have to also fight against the, the terms of dissemination of, of, of viruses that are that are uh, uh, that are being utilized, you know, by, by Western heads of states for sole purpose in terms of not only depopulating but eradicating large number of people throughout the world. So we we, we got a problem. So that is the fundamental reality in terms of the existence that we find ourselves confronted with. And we should not delude ourselves into believing, you know, that uh, you know that this is not part of a, uh, a, a, a military strategy, in terms of the depopulation of the world's world's populations. Okay, panelists, let's we're gonna pause for for a few minutes. We're gonna listen to a presentation by Brother Kwame Ray as it relates to lessons from history we should learn. We're gonna look, listen attentively, and when we come back. We'd like to get your response as it relates to this subject matter today. Now, here's Brother Kwame. We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s in its relationships to the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. 
Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. 
Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some mothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like... You're welcome back to Africa on the Move. You're listening to some lessons from the 60s, 70s. 80s and 90s by Brother Kwame Ture. And we want to talk a little bit about some of the points he made in reference to today's program as we talk about the art of killing and destruction. This is what they do. Panelists, hearing some of the lessons that he just laid down about what we must learn from our struggle, our movement, since the enemy used our history as a tool to fight against us, one of the things he said that really interesting is that we should not be provoked by outside forces. Our actions should come more from internal, internally driven. Now, how does that relate to this whole reality of when you're looking at the different forms of warfare that are taking place? Like in this case, we talk about vaccination, vaccine shots, and how they are using it to create um, damages among our people and genocide people. How do we stop reacting to what they do and start being rational? Uh, planning and don't be instinctive, brother Haki. Well, brother Africa, again, you you raise a very intricate question. Uh, you know, essentially, what we talk about is legitimization. Uh, how do you get people to legitimize leadership within the African community? It's a very tough, tough thing. Historically, you know, one of the problems is that you know we we weren't able to have political organizations. We were only relegated to following the preacher. And, of course, you know, historically what they've done is they've always paid preachers in terms of propagating certain messages to make sure people don't develop a revolutionary consciousness. So, you know, we're just beginning to innovate the political organizations. But even in the context of political organizations, the problem is that it's one of clarity, one of understanding. Uh, one of the things, you know, we, we talk often, we talk about the, 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 the essence in terms of the system. Well, when we talk about the essence of the system, we, we, we irritate a lot of people. We make them very, very angry. Uh, because we, they're not accustomed to in terms of people speaking you know, forthrightly about the system. Uh, if we were to exaggerate, were we to lie, if we said those things they want to hear, then we'd be then, then people would would be people would perceive us as being, you know, great uh, and great role models in terms of the kind of things that we say, because we understand that we can't uh, perpetuate fallacy because we understand in the final analysis, to a lot of the people is is tantamount to setting them up, you know, for their own destruction. As revolutionaries, we can't do that, so we won't do that. Uh, but the question in terms of legitimization is a very difficult one, and it's something that's going to we continue to struggle with and try to get people to understand, you know, that if you don't understand a particular thing, is okay, but to have a discussion, you know, to engage and study, you can come to understand, you know, the reality of the situation, but we've got to get people to that point. Uh, people are innovative with uh, massive propaganda, and people want to believe 
for instance, uh, people want to believe that uh, if people want to find a job, they can find a job, that people are essentially lazy, they don't want to work. Well, that's been propagated by the system. But, of course, when you look at, when you look at, uh, we have an honest look in terms of how the system is, how the system works, then you understand not only people, the system cannot employ people, but the system has a desire to employ people. Because what is paramount in the capitalist system is not the employment of people, but profits. That is paramount, not the employment of people. And get people to understand the fundamental reality is difficult because people want to believe that they always can find a job. So they're vested in the lie that they always can find a job. And so what you're trying to get them to see is that, no, 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 it's not true. Listen, check it out for yourself. What they're saying is not true. It's a very difficult sale. So the consequence in terms of the kind of legitimization that we need in terms of moving forward, we're not there yet because we're still struggling, you know, with, uh, with, this, with, this, with, the, with, the, with the power of propaganda and people actually believing what the system tells them as opposed to critiquing for themselves in terms of what's really going on. Let me just give you an example in terms of I think, what things that has to happen real quick to Brother Africa. I think when we talk about our struggle, one thing we're very clear on, we got this colonial mindset. I'm reminded of the fact that the Ansar Allah community in Brooklyn, New York, they're no longer there, but they used to be there. For over 20 years, they had a self-contained community, you know, and, and the kids were some of the most intelligent, most inquisitive, I mean, disciplined children that you ever want to meet. But that's because that community created conditions which impacted on the way that children think, the way the children behave. Why can't we replicate that? The problem is that we can't replicate that because we got a mindset which, which says that I'm only concerned about my children, nobody else. As long as we have that mindset, we can never do the kind of things, create the kind of conditions that empowers all our children because our mindsets won't allow us to do that. Again, we, we lack the legitimization of leadership in the African community. So until we get there, the struggle is going to be a very difficult one. So I think that is something that we, we have to focus on and try to get people to understand the urgency in terms of legitimizing African leadership in the community and not legitimizing leadership outside the community in the hopes that somehow these people outside the community have your best interests at heart. Okay, Brother Anthony, how can you make yeah. sense of the statement where Brother Kwame Ture stated that when it comes to African people's struggle, he stated that the real struggle must be understood by the masses of the people. What's the significance of that, and can you tie that into this discussion that we're having today? Yes. Uh, well, what he was saying was we need uh, the political education of the masses of the people, that we must look look to ourselves for leadership, not outside ourselves. And uh, we and we and there is no one person that's gonna free us necessarily. It has to be brought about by the action of the masses of our people, and that we have to look at what we need in order to preserve our our lives and our culture. And uh, and uh, and uh, what we have to do has to be independent of how our our enemies react or act on us. And uh, I think that's uh, a, 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 a critical point. Um, we were able to, to to do a lot uh, out of spontaneity, out of disorganization. Uh, uh, only a mere mobilization 
but our power will only be realized when we are organized and we form permanent organizations in order to protect our interests and advance uh, our humanity. And uh, in terms of where this ties into this discussion, we cannot, uh, uh, you know, react to a uh, to a disaster or crisis. We have to be more proactive. We have to look at, uh, you know, study our history in order to find the solutions for our future and how to protect the future of our children. And Brother Moses, they say they can fool some of the people some of the time, but they can't fool all the people all the time. Yeah. What you make of that that statement, and how Uh can we ensure from this point on that our people understand the game that's being played when you're talking about this game of vaccination? Hello? Yes, yes, Brother Moses. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, this, this vaccination game is a very dangerous game. A very, very, uh, uh, it's a question of trust and organization and uh, who can you depend on. And uh, it's a very, very dangerous because you would think that the United Nations would be a reliable source of sort of a uh, independent, mutual. Uh, self-help type situation uh, 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 whereas, he, whereas he, the UN is sometimes carrying out his own agenda with, with his sterilization programs and different things. And so uh, it's a very, very dangerous game. Uh, uh, we, we need we need some independent independent uh, objective scientists to be handling this situation of Doctors Without Borders or somebody possibly, I don't know, but uh, we need somebody to verify that this, these, this predators don't get on a vulnerable population. Thank you. Okay, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick session break when we come back. Have your final thoughts for tonight as we entertain the art of killing and destruction. This is what they do. We'll be right back and give us your summarization for today's program. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, You can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine 
needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. You listen to. Tonight theme of the art of killing and destruction. This is what they do, part one. There'll be a two-part series. So we invite you to come back next week as we continue this important discussion. Discussion, And at this point in time, I the panel is to just tell some thoughts and announcements they may have to the audience. We start with Brother Moses. Trump implement his tariffs, I think it's important to understand. Essentially what he's doing is 
secretly transferring wealth from the poorest people to the most wealthiest people. Every all those tariffs do, they do nothing in terms of revitalizing the economy, and people have to understand that. The real danger is that as the economy declines, there's an instinctive need for scapegoats, and we have to understand that precisely. Um, you know, and so I'm going to say that, Brother African, I'm close with, as always, I would simply say to people, you know, it's important that, you know, we, we, you know, that we understand what the realities are, and more importantly, that we work to unravel the matrix, because this is very, very real out here. And I want to have a good night. And we also like to thank you, too, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. We'd like to thank our listening audience, our friends and supporters who support and listen to Africa on the Move. We'd like to remind you that, remember, Africa on the Move is a community development project of the African Awareness Association. And if you have any comments, any views, any particular perspective, and you'd like to share them with us, you can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. If you have any issues that go on in the community that you think that people need to know about, feel free to email us, and we'd like to invite you to come on this program and share them with us. Because as we tell you all the time, that remember, without information, you cannot think. And without organization, you cannot think clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that does something to help alleviate the suffering of your people and humanity. So until next time, we see you next week, same time, same station. And we just want you to remember, let's get organized, organized, organized. That's the solution to our people. And Africanism is a key. It will set all Africans free. Because if they don't care about you, we do. So, here with the song.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.